So I'd like to look at some of the language of the actual discourse that's been translated into English <clears throat> on this third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind. Earlier on, there's, um, there's a setup for how to establish mindfulness, and then you put it into these four foundations. And so there's a general way to approach mindfulness. There are these four topics, and then inherent in them, there's a type of reflection to deepen the wisdom that leads <coughs> to liberation. Just a touch on that coming into mindfulness, there's uh, one part where there's these two words, um, a person meditating abides contemplating. So these two words, abides contemplating. One part of mindfulness is the abiding. And it's not necessarily a word we use a lot in, um, in common English. But to abide, um, did anybody say the big Lebowski? <laughs> it get used a lot because the, the dude abides. <clears throat> And what that means is that this character in the movie has learned to uh, rest in the way things are, be unflappable, so be a little bit more relaxed into the way things are. One abides. If you know the four Brahma Viharas, these practices that are beautiful developments of the heart, they're often called um, the divine abidings, letting your heart and mind find a home, be at rest in. And so with mindfulness, one whole part of it is just learning to abide in the flow of experiences without old habits of preferring and choosing and crafting and sculpting and rejecting and amplifying. But can we learn to abide in the flow of our experiences? And given our underlying temperament, we have some capacity for that, but we often have these other things that come in we get bored and therefore we go off somewhere else or we don't like what's happening in a particular moment so we have to kind of struggle with it. But learning to abide in what's happening, abide in the breath, learning to abide in the field of the mind itself when it's sleepy, when it's calm, when it's distracted, when it's bubbling up with love and enthusiasm, can we abide in these expressions of heart and mind? So that's one part of bringing mindfulness to the mind, is learning to abide. So we sit here out of peer pressure. We keep sitting here sometimes. And so you kind of like, well, I'll abide, but I don't want to. Or this is not a part of my mind heart I want to abide in. Um, so I'll, I'm waiting this one out. Or I think, well, why not? Why not try it? What is it like to abide in your own calm? What is it like to abide in your own anger? We've so... This is new for a lot of us to learn to not do something with it, but just allow it to express itself for as long as it's going to be there. And then nothing lasts. So abide in that expression of heart and mind for the time that it will be here. And then it will fade and something else will take its place. So learning to abide and not intervene so much. Yeah. That's one part. And the second part is this word contemplating. So once you learn to abide in the flow of present time experiences, then you begin to uh, see them clearly. It's like me trying to um, understand you, but never actually being near you or never actually talking with you. First, I abide in your company. 
And then I begin to understand who you are through experience. And so we abide contemplating. We come into the mind on a day like today. We learn to abide with our mind expressing itself in all these various ways. And then we begin to learn about the mind itself. It's like going into an ecosystem and first you abide there. You learn how to be comfortable and relaxed. And then within that ecosystem, it begins to teach you how it works. It shows you how, you know, the ferns and the tall trees and the animals and the way the soil works and the way the weather works. If you abide there long enough, you'll see how that ecosystem works. You go to the desert, you abide there long enough, you'll see all the little critters that have learned to live in the dry desert. And you go to a rainforest and you abide there and you begin to learn how a rainforest works. You go to um, an estuary and you abide there long enough you'll learn how an estuary works. You go deep sea diving and learn to abide there and not panic because you're underwater. You learn to relax. We just in, the, in this beautiful coral, coral reef in Belize, 90 feet underwater, breathing out of this tank of air. And if you can't abide, you can't learn because if you're so preoccupied about, am I gonna live or I can't be this far underwater or whatever, you can't see what's happening. So you learn to relax in that situation, you abide. And then it's just fascinating to see how that works. So you learn to abide in your mind as it gets angry, as it gets calm, as it gets fearful, as it comes up with its own brilliance, and as it then gets tired of its brilliance and goes back to something simple and then goes here and goes here. You're learning to abide within this very powerful thing that's a part of your experience, that's generating why you even have experience at all, is the fact that you have this active heart and mind. So we're learning to abide in it and then learning to understand it from within it, learning to become more familiar with these activities and expressions of heart and mind. So that's the lead in, calm, abiding, I mean, abide contemplating. You abide first and then you begin to understand through direct experience and familiarity. So. Abide with your anger and then learn to understand it. If you try to understand your anger when you can't tolerate it, the whole dissonance of not even wanting to be there colors why you can't even understand your anger and what's really going on there. I understand it well enough to know I don't want it, so let's just get out of there. Versus, why am I this angry? What's cooking here? What's, where's all this actually coming from? Well, you know, I was treated this way as a child. It's like, okay, let's go back into it. Like, how does it really work? And you're like, oh, I, okay, wow. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of heat here and resentments and, oh, actually watching this thing, it's really powerful. It's the difference between um, psychology that might do a lot of understanding of how you were sculpted as a child and how it's playing out now versus right in the moment, deepening in to watch your habits and patterns as they express themselves. That's the mindfulness approach to understanding the mind going right down into it and watching it and taking away interpretations so you can actually see it clearer. And then through seeing it clearer, you notice patterns of how, what triggers you and how, how do you get triggered and how's your mind organized to deal with its own upset or uh, be supported and nourished by its own love? What role does faith play in you? Zero or a lot? So you get to come in and uh, learn from your own heart and mind. Then we bring our mindfulness in, and here's the language that's specific to this foundation of mindfulness. 
coming in, here's the instruction. She knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. He knows an anger mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. She knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion and a mind sorry knows mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be a without delusion. He knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. This is the first categories of experiences and they're more the way the mind struggles. So maybe one of the first things we'll do when we come in, what's more obvious to us is the graphic experience of when our mind is discontent. So many of us will start there as we come in and you uh, come in and you see a mind that is uh, lustful, which is this Pali word raga, a mind that's obsessed, it's locked on, it's sort of tracking something and it wants something from it. So it's got this lock on capacity. Can you watch your mind do that? Can you be in your mind while it's in this state of raga, tra translated as lust? It might be like going to a restaurant and you're enjoying your, the company of your friends and then you see somebody order something and it gets there. And even though they're talking, you're now like, oh, that's what I want, that's what I want. Oh man, where is that on the list? And the person's you know, like, I haven't seen you in years. Let me tell you about this and tell my father. And, and you're like, yeah, but that pizza over there, oh my God, that's really important. And I wanna make sure that I understand what it is before they eat it. So your mind's locked on because it's tracking pizza rather than the person in front of you. Or maybe you're locked onto the person in front of you. When does the mind lock on to what it thinks is going to be pleasant? versus allowing there to be something pleasant, even very pleasant, but it hasn't, it hasn't hooked the mind yet. It hasn't gotten you yet. So know those two experiences, and it probably isn't simple enough that it's either A or B, but the range, a mind that's is slightly locked into what they're calling lust here, or a mind that's extremely preoccupied, can you, within that experience, begin to look at it from within the experience? Like, I can't, I'm so locked on, I can't even look at the mind when it's locked on. It's like, well, you just learned something about a locked on mind. When it's locked on to something it really wants, it's really hard to ask a question about it in that time. It's marshalling so much of its energy towards the object that there's so little left over to even look at what's happening to the mind when it's in its locked on state, its locked on lusty state versus when the mind is not, and it's a little bit more spacious, then you can ask, oh, this is a mind that isn't right now locked on with the sense of raga, the sense of lust. Yet you might not think to ask it. Like, you know, again, I started off earlier, on a scale from zero to 10, um, how many of you are up in like the seven, eight, nine, ten 10 of raga, of this lust of locking on, I, I need this, I want this, I'm obsessed with it. How many of you are in that state right now? or would care to admit it. <laughs> right on you, good for you. So you get to actually explore what that expression of heart and mind is like, and that's challenging because it's not what the mind wants to do. It wants to figure out a way to get what it wants. But you're saying, okay, that's what you're doing, and from within it, I'm gonna taste the 
My happiness is there. And if I can get it, I will be happy. And God, if I can't get it, I will not be happy. I'm not sure what your mind does, but when my mind locks on, all my welfare is very far away and precarious. And so I get excited when I think I'm going to get it, and I get fearful when I think I can't get it. <clears throat> but then I, if I can, I can actually begin to watch my mind create that scenario and then live within it. And then that wave passes, and you come out of it. And then you get to say, what's it like as I transition out of this lusty state? It's like, oh, there's a lot more of the world that's available. A lot more of my happiness feels intrinsic. Like, I don't feel discontent. I'm like, oh, yeah, the thing over there would be nice, but it's not going to make or break me. Oh, I can breathe deeper. So I'm now knowing when lust is available and when it's not. When it's not, avail when it's not arising in me, it's easier to be generous. It's easier to be patient. It's easier to take in a lot more information. So that's knowing your heart and your mind when this one factor is dominant or absent. The first part of this, uh, it's the first part of the mindfulness of mind is looking at this uh, one capacity to draw in and obsessing about something pleasant or not being caught up in that. We're all having to navigate that anyhow in daily life. You know, as children, we obsess about having certain things, certain toys or certain experiences, and our parents are helping us navigate that. But as we grow up, we do our own navigation and we begin to see through the promises. Like, if I can't get that thing, that new thing, you know, it's actually a thing like a your smartphone or you fall in love with somebody and then even though you were okay without them beforehand, now you can't be okay because they're going to make or break you. Um, I must have this relationship, this job, this house, whatever you're locking on to. You begin to study from within the experience what the mind is like when it's caught and when it's free. And that's important in terms of just navigating that part of your life. But in terms of the Four Noble Truths, the suffering that comes from a mind that's caught up in this greed, this desire, this obsession, this lust, is bound, is so bound up that it's bound to suffer. Even if you think you're going to get what you want, the fact that you're even in a mind that's locking on, there is my happiness. It's not with me now, or I do have it now, but I got to hold on to it. I've got a grip here. A mind that's doing that is guaranteed to suffer. A mind that releases from that while you're in prison, you can't imagine sometimes what it's like to be out of it. You can be so transfixed by the obsession that you lose familiarity with what it was like not to be obsessed. I had that happen once with a relationship. I'd been in many relationships, and then I fell very deeply in love with somebody more than I uh, ever had before. And I got so transfixed by it <clears throat> that I couldn't remember being ever happy before I had met, uh, met this person. Now, when the relationship didn't work out, I couldn't imagine ever being happy again. And I knew factually that probably wasn't true. But from within the submersion of the, the hope that I had found this incredible happiness and that I, could, I would get to have it, and then not getting to have it and feeling so grief-struck, I couldn't get outside of the experience for a long time. And so I was in it. And luckily I have Dharma friends who say, well, what's it like to be in it? 
It's like, don't, I don't know, I don't want to be in it. Like, stop improving, stop increasing my intimacy with this. Like, <laughs> you're, you're a friend, get me out of here. And it's like, no, I am, I am a friend, I want you in it. Like, turn on the flashlight and point it at the wall. Like, what do you see in there? Like, that's oh, so unpleasant. I don't want to show up more here. But as long as I'm here and I kind of believe this is the way through, what is it like? It's like, oh, the, you know, the, the smile that I knew, I'll never have it again. I will never smile like that. Wow, I, don't, I can't deal with that. I can't deal with this belief that I will never be happy again. So I'm just trying for anything but this. But can you go in there and for a moment, I will never be happy again. And you sink into it. And then you're released from it. It's the strangest thing. You sink into it, it's unbearable. And then the whole trap of it is that you can't be conscious within it. And you are, and it begins to dissolve from within. And there's some strange thing about how we're patterned. I'm not sure if it's neurochemical or whatever, but being able to drop in and breathe in the middle of your anger, your obsessions, your fears, the moment you can actually breathe in there and begin to coexist with that expression of your heart and mind, it begins to unfurl. The prison falls apart from within it. As you beat at the door, the door gets stronger. Get me out of here. It just, the, the bricks get thicker. And as you learn to kind of sit in the middle of it and breathe, it begins to transform. Its strength comes from an inability to be conscious within it. And the way that you do that, <clears throat> this is, let's just take this one for example. Um, or we can go into the next one. He knows an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. So again, you're building capacity to meet the intensity of your own anger. And you, you, you get angry, you get triggered, it's an old pattern, you feel it. But you drop in a little further and you know, like, okay, here it is. Oh, I'm such a bad person. It's so easy for me to get angry. It's like, okay, let's just feel it. Yeah, I'm boiling inside, I'm boiling inside. Mm. You feel it. And then you begin to notice because you're more empty that it comes in a wave, it has a peak, and then it can't actually sustain itself. And so right there, you gain some faith. I don't have to be angry for the rest of my life. I just have to be conscious in this wave of anger and I'm building capacity. I'm not disoriented within it. I know it's a wave. Here is this anger. It's coming and it's going. Strangely enough, as you try to avoid anger, you actually are building a fear that is permanent. That's why we avoid it. We're afraid that it's going to come get us and drill in and become a permanent part of us. And yet the running from it is a belief that it's more predominant, that it has more power to it. So while we're running from these aspects of heart and mind, we're giving them actually more opportunity to dig in. As you come in and know them, at first they get bigger because you're more familiar with them, but then they're only getting big to the degree that they're actually there. If, I, if this bell were the size of my anger and I wasn't looking at it, and I look at a part of it, and it's like, oh, I, I think it's a pretty big bell, and I look at more of it, and finally I see the whole thing, it's becoming more and more evident, this anger, this grief, this whatever you haven't been able to meet before. But there does come a point where it gives its full expression. This is the height of what this looks like. When I was in Burma, um, 
there was a point where I um, sprained both my ankles and I was afraid that I actually had broken one of them. And so I was taken to this monastery I didn't want to be in. It was really hot and I was put in a room that faced south and the wall was absorbing this hot sun and the room was cooking. It was in the afternoon and there was nowhere to go. If I tried to go anywhere, I'd be walking on these painful ankles. But I was trying to really trying hard to meet it. Not actually go into it, but meet it. <laughs> I was meeting my anger and it was going from a I'm, I'm meeting it and putting it down, meeting it and putting it down. I was like, okay, I'm meeting it. It's really strong. I'm meeting it. And this roof of this monastery had was metal. And these crows came and they would fly. They'd hit the top of the wall and screech their nails down it and then perch right at the end and start cawing to each other. And it was, it sound, each one sounded like someone was being strangled to death, and cawing, <laughs> cawing. And then they'd fly off. But then they'd land again. Hit, scratch down, caw. And then I was like, ah, oh, and I was meeting it, and I was meeting it. And I thought I was doing a good job of meeting my anger, but not letting it take over, which is appropriate. You know, it was, it was appropriate. But there did come a point where this uh, young monk started running up and down the hallway, teasing everybody and knocking on all the doors. And they all loved it. They thought he was a character. And at that time, it, it broke, the, it was the straw. I couldn't take it anymore. And I was trying so hard to be a good meditator, but I, I grabbed the mattress and I just began to boil alive in all this, the crows and the sprained ankles and the heat and this young monk going back and forth. And I just started loathing everything. I felt like such a meditator failure. I was like, like I'm trying to be more and more peaceful week by week, charting myself. And I'm actually hating these crows, hating this young, how could you hate a young monk? I am, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I just boiled and boiled and boiled in it. And <clears throat> what boiled in there was this noble yet misaligned desire to not ever have anger, not be somebody with anger, to try to climb my way with a rope ladder out of myself to be Gandhi or to be somebody other than me. And what happened was the rope cut and I actually fell down into it. And I fell into this anger and it was very sad. I kind of thought my meditative career was over and I was just, you know, object failure and this is every sign uh, on the wall, the broken ankles or the sprained ankles and the intolerance of it. It's like, pack your bags and go. <laughs> but I fell into it. And then <clears throat> while I was in there, nowhere to go, and just in this kind of like, this rage and the injustice of it all and my failure and all that, it felt like I had fallen into a volcano. I was just brewing all this lava. And there came a point where I was like, you know, it's just intense. I don't just make a big, bigger story out of it. It's just super intense. And everywhere I point my attention, it hates. It just, I'm in a hating mind. It just hates and is intolerant. But you know, I can deal. That's just what it's doing right now. And then <clears throat> the fear of it broke and the ability to actually be in an angry mind and then being to be familiar with it and then learning like, it's not so bad. It's just a wave. It doesn't have to define me. It doesn't have to define my future or um, measure me as a meditator. This is just what happens. Here there is anger. That's actually the very power. If you listen to the language of this, there is no intervention. And the Buddha, you know, he gave some pretty powerful interventions to be done, to be trained, to be developed. Here, you know an angry mind to be angry. 
And then what? No, you know an angry mind to be angry. But that there isn't another instruction there is profound. Because if there was another instruction there, what would happen is an underlying tendency of us not to want to be angry would take that instruction and do something with it. That instruction would probably be taken over by, I want to be the perfect me. So, okay, I've known myself to have anger. Now what do I do about it? In this particular teaching, don't do something about it. Be in it. And it itself will transform because it's impermanent. Here you don't actually have to do anything about the anger. Your job is to mature your ability to be in it and watch its nature to be impermanent. This is phenomenal. This is really phenomenal to come into these expressions of heart and mind, be intimate with them, and watch them, watch their nature. Anger plays out a certain way, but it will succumb to impermanence. Love comes and does what it does, and it itself succumbs to impermanence something else will take its place. You come in to these practices, you come into these experiences of heart and mind, and you don't do something about it. This is not the only thing you're supposed to do with your heart and your mind. There are other trainings where you do come in and learn skillful ways to uh, meet anger and transform it. But here in this one teaching, with the language of it, it's very intentional. You know an angry mind to be angry, you don't know a mind without anger to be a mind without anger. And that's the development. It's just, it's so sophisticated. It doesn't give your um, super ego anything to do with it. You can't become a better person. You can't self your way to some other goal. It's just there is anger. And now there's not. But what is there now? Well, there's no anger there's peace. Oh, and now there's not. There's restlessness. And now there's not. It's a whole development to see how these things move and to take away the underlying need to be somebody else, to be something better, just for a moment, to develop that capacity. Not as like, this is what liberation looks like, but as a development can you be in these things and learn about them? Like watching a dancer from another culture, you know, can you just watch the dance and learn from the dancer? Can you watch anger play itself out and learn from it? How does it move? What does it believe? How does it take over your world? How does it distort your world? Please come again, I wanna know you. I mean, not, <laughs> not too much, but if you, if you are gonna come again, I will learn you. I will understand how you take me over and then you pass. It's a different relationship to these difficult states than just learning to, to fence with them or battle with them. You learn to be patient with them. You learn to have room for them. You learn to not let them define you. I'm so afraid of being angry because I don't want to be that person. I don't want it to define me. It's just a weather system moving through as is states of peace, as are states of tranquility. They are 
conditioned experiences passing through you, and you are not defined by any one of them. You're not defined by your love, except that you get to have it. You are, it's a quality of who you are, but it's not a fundamental uh, thing of who you are. Neither is your fear, neither is your anxiety, neither is your vigilance. You, it's, it visits a lot, but it's not, the, it's not permanent. It's not a permanent factor of my mind. It's an interesting reflection. And so the question is, um, how do you actually get in there? Because it, it is powerful, and it can take you over, and it actually can cause harm. And so the context of this particular teaching, to do this well, <clears throat> you it comes again out of the Eightfold Path, and three of the Eightfolds are... Um, ethical conduct. And so you take these vows and you make these vows very powerful. I will not cause harm. No matter what this thing does, it will never get in this hand. And I take that vow. You, the, you can go as nuts as you want to go, heart and mind, but I will clamp my teeth down. If you start getting into my hands and you actually start to cause action, I'm shutting this whole thing down. So when you have that type of conviction around your ethical behavior and you really become firm around that, you have more capacity to let something up and it doesn't actually cause harm. 
So the reason I, those crows were safe, that young monk was safe, <laughs> people were safe because I had taken very for, strong vows and I didn't even know. I say, like, okay, I'll take a vow. I'll never harm somebody. That's a great vow. That's a very weak, I was like, I love that vow, check. No, no, take that vow <laughs> because we're gonna go places where that vow had better be cast in steel. It's like, yeah, but I'm a, I'm a peaceful person. I don't really need to like, it's a lot. No, take that vow because on the path of liberation, you're gonna pass through some things. If you don't have that vow perfectly strong, it might lead to action. So because you have the basis of sila, the strength and the conditions, and it sounds like your friend had conditions to really get in there and this, enough safety was given so that person could actually go through an experience. At least that's what I'm drawing from it and how I'm interpreting it, what, what I think is useful. So if you have the vows of non-harming, then you can actually begin to unleash some of these and you can go into them a little bit to unlock them from the inside. So you better have some pretty good vows that if you're gonna to start to let the mind have lust and not intervene, which means you're probably going to be running more lust than you have done before. <clears throat> and it could easily turn into harm if you didn't have the conviction not to cause harm. And it, it's like creating a crucible. You have these solid ceramic walls that can endure the heat so that the metal can melt within. And the sila is the the crucible that holds you while you start not intervening on the display of lust, the display of anger. You actually can give it a little more room to work itself out. Otherwise, you will always be having to go in and wrestle with it and chop it down, wrestle with it and chop it down. Another form of liberating these harmful states is holding them and letting themselves liberate as they express themselves because there's something hidden down below like powerlessness or you know, fears or other things that we can't get at what's generating them because the thing itself, the anger is on top so I can't experience the powerlessness because I can't experience the anger it's created. So I'm always having to run away from it. Here's a capacity, you go into the anger and you cook and boil and then you relax a little bit and then you can actually ask questions that are not intellectual questions. But from in this experience, do you feel powerful? Do you feel powerful enough to live without anger? Like, no, that's what the anger is saving me from. There's this powerlessness. Are you actually not powerful enough? No. No, I'm actually powerful enough to handle the situation without anger. So you have to go into it sometimes to unleash it, to unlock it. And that's where having uh, the external world support you, the context of the right community or right convictions so that you don't let lust happen unchecked or anger happen unchecked and then cause harm. This is rich, beautiful. Um, I love it. And we've come up into our lunchtime and I don't want to rob you of that because we need it for the, our bodies and our sustenance. So what I want you to do is to reflect upon this um, and we'll come back and we'll start the next session reflecting on this. 
What is it like to give, to safely and in a healthy way, give room for these states of heart and mind to come up so we can meet them with mindfulness and understand them? And how can we do that in a safe and constructive way? And that's the, that's the core of this foundation of mindfulness and why it's not language with any intervention, but just, you know there's a lust in, lust in your mind, you know there's not. You know there's anger in your mind and not. Some of you might want to take this time and be quiet, and that might help you <coughs> metabolize the day. And uh, some of you might have come with friends. If you uh, want to talk, it'd be helpful if, you, if we kept this meadow part quiet, if you wanted to talk, if you would um, go out to the road and walk or eat across the road or take a walk so our talking happened elsewhere, just so people have a place to go if they want to stay uh, quiet. The second announcement is we're going to come back um, at, uh, let's come back at quarter of two, so 1.45. I'll give you a, an hour. If you want to walk up the hill, you can. The retreat just ended up there. And so if you haven't been up the hill or you want to, this is actually one of the afternoons that um, there's no problem walking up the hill and even seeing the upper meditation hall. Just don't bring um, food into the upper meditation hall. But if you want to stretch your legs, the, you can go up the hill this afternoon if you want. And then um, listen for the bell and we'll meet back here at 1.45. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.